welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, everyone. And my name is Ashling. And today we are here with, well, a bit of a superstar in my eyes, because anyone who's chief forecaster is like an echelon above us all. I'm here with Paul Gunderson today, who's a chief forecaster in the Met office, but also I have known Paul a couple of years and we've got really small weather circles. So I'm pretty sure we all know someone who knows someone. We've probably got about two degrees of freedom, I'd say, between the three of us. But Paul, welcome to the podcast. So first of all, before we start asking anything complicated, where did that first spark of joy, of love for the weather come from? When was the first one you remember? Depends how far back I can trace. Uh, definitely as a young child, I loved snow. absolutely loved it. I've worked out from my knowledge of weather history, um, placed together bits of information that my mum and dad told me, that deep snow fell in Manchester, where I'm from, in uh, December 1981, just before Christmas when I was about two and a half. And that sounds very young, but I've got vivid memories of being taken to have my photo taken in, in the village I lived in, and the snow was kind of up to my waist. And there's no other time wow. that had that amount of snow apart from then. So I think that maybe that was it. But certainly growing up through kind of primary school age, you know, I spotted that I'd watched the TV weather forecast. I loved it when it snowed. It's kind of magic. And it never seemed to snow when it was supposed to. And it, it often snowed when it wasn't supposed to. And that was kind of part of the excitement of it, really. It kind of always seemed to be unexpected. So, yes, yeah, young child, I figured out that when the, the clouds are coming from like the north or, or the east, there's more chance it might snow and start to spot those things. And then, then they're became a bit obsessed really so kind of went from there lucky us lucky us so fast forward all of this time you're now a chief forecaster in the met office i've worked in the met office so i really get how complicated and like there are so many things in your job so it's not just about sitting there you know talking about sunny spells and showers that type of thing tell us a little bit more about the detail of what you do the, the level of detail that you need to understand on a daily basis well, we're kind of looking at the bigger picture. The most operational meteorologists are focused on a particular region or a customer group, something like that. We're looking at everything. So we're looking at the big picture from kind of a European Atlantic scale, even hemispheric at times, trying to piece together all the information, all the model data we have, all the satellite imagery. So you have to have a good understanding of that broad scale dynamics, but also mesoscale meteorology and down to the local in terms of what it all means when you're producing guidance and warnings. So it's a kind of a whole raft really, but most of it's, most of the skill these days given the masses of data volume is managing how you're going to analyze what and what not going to look at because you can't look at it all and neither should you. So it's, it's <laughs> one is having the meteorological skills to be or situational awareness to know which stuff is within scope today and what's not in scope and then analyze the data you need to, to, to make decisions and then do that quickly enough for that to be useful as well to the, to the end users. Which is really quite a complicated procedure because you've got a huge supercomputer in the Met office. So you're talking like terabytes of data every couple of hours coming out with new information. That's right. I've got model runs, well, constantly almost. I've got uh, high resolution models running every hour and big global models running for every six hours or so. And all our data is coming through to our workstations and it's constantly something else you can look at all, all the way through the sort of 24 hour cycle. So, yeah, it's a case of being on, on top of that and um, being able to translate it quickly and kind of second guess what models are going to do next and, and, and 
decide in advance what you might do if they don't don't do what you expect and that sort of thing so yeah managing masses of data but not getting bogged down in it as so as taking a step back and be able to sort of uh smooth over the noise and extract signal from that noise and and you know in, interpret that in a way that's useful to other operational meteorologists and uh, and so forth so now that me and Gemma have you on our podcast we both want to ask you something right so we talk all the time about snow and whether you like it or not so for us we love it if we're not working but if we're working it's really stressful but can you tell us a little bit about snow forecasting and the complications of snow for- forecasting? Why is it so hard in the UK to get to get it, to know whether it's going to snow or not? I think, as you just said, it's the UK, isn't it? We're at a, a sort of a, a climatological junction, aren't we? We're kind of on the cusp of cold air at times, but often, you know, we're in islands. A lot of areas are quite low lying, quite close to the coast. The air masses we get are often very marginal as to where the snow falls or settles down to kind of you know low elevation sea level whether it's one or 200 meters up and a half a degree of error in temperature and all of a sudden snow you're expecting to, to settle in the middle of Birmingham settles on you know on, on the, the Cotswolds instead at 200 meters higher up and a slight error both in terms of what the models are producing or our ideas are suggesting uh, and they can be wrong quite quickly oh, conversely you know often you get a uh, temperatures temperatures plus two or something and it's raining and you get half an hour you know the intensity of the rain increases quite markedly and that all of a sudden your wet ball freezing level just drops down to the surface for just for half an hour and you've got several centimeters of snow you weren't expecting so that's often the case because it's so marginal here uh, between rain and snow it's just it's so so difficult and so easy to get it very badly wrong or not on a local scale even though we'll be aware in advance that the potential is there and well aware that things are likely to go wrong at times trying to be on top of that is very very difficult exceptions of course though when they get proper arctic air or really cold air from the east like uh, the, the beast from the east feb march 2018 when everything was going to be snow it's a case of how much <laughs> that was actually relatively easy but more typical british snow though uh, much more difficult when you're on shift and you see that it's that cold air mass and you know it's just going to snow to all levels and it's not you're not worrying about the snow level those sort of shifts, you're like, okay, I can. These shifts are okay because you can just be like, okay, it's just how much snow is is going to accumulate in places. It's those yeah. marginal days when you're like, is it going to snow at 500 meters or 350 meters? Those days are the ones yeah. when it becomes really, really tricky. Absolutely, and, and most of our snow in this country falls into that bracket. Yeah. So, and because our populated areas tend to be low lying as well, so where the impacts of snow are greatest, and it's more important to try and get it right, it's the hardest. So, what have what have like what have been the big advances like in snow forecasting? Like, so, I, I mean, forecasting at the best of times does have a little bit of dark magic about it, <laughs> you know, a little bit of a dark art. Looking at like really fine detail stuff, you know, below 100 meters is in like, you know, where, where, where there's really change happening, whether you're doing aviation or, or whatever you're doing. But what have we, what has advanced over the last 10 years that has made snow forecasting a little bit easier? Definitely having higher resolution models, especially with more vertical levels. So uh, we're able to capture uh, a bit more vertical definitions, temperature profiles. And I can recall even oh, I, I became a deputy chief in 2009 and we had two or three really cold, quite snowy winters then. But one where there was a marginal setup with something coming up from the south and uh, the strength of flow across the English Channel was enough to turn it sleety in places like Exeter. When we, well, we told staff to go home because it's going to be 10 centimetres of snow and there wasn't. Uh, 
five, six miles further inland or 100 metres further up, it was all snow. And all our models at the time were quite coarse resolutions, suggesting all that's going to be snow. And of course, it, it, it mostly was, apart from around there. Uh, whereas now, I'd expect the models to actually resolve that level of both horizontal definition and also right. vertical resolution as well. So that has definitely improved uh, during my time in the office. So have you got a... It's like, what's your... I'll start with the negative first. What's your worst type of weather event to forecast for? When you've got kind of widespread low cloud with some breaks in it and where the cloud breaks, it's going to, fog's going to form quickly, but very uncertain to where that's going to happen. Uh, th 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 those, it's kind of a combination of being, it's not the most exciting dramatic weather, but it's quite impactful to quite a large base of our customers, mainly in the aviation and defence sectors. It's important to, you know, to, to do your best and try to give good guidance on where, which parts of the country and when you might get fog rather than low clouds. But at the same time, it's very, very difficult. And um, you know, you're probably well aware from your forecasting career how, how difficult that is, particularly on a site-specific basis. And that's often what the customer cares about. Will it be fog at Heathrow or not? That's very, very difficult to say in this sort of setup. Um, so those are probably the most, the most challenging, but in terms of the balance between the weather being interesting and enjoyable and difficult to get right, that's probably the worst of both worlds, I'd say. It totally is. <laughs> You've mentioned a few um, elements like wet bulb um, temperatures <clears throat> a bit earlier on. So when, you're, when it comes to snow forecasting, what certain things will you be looking at? Because I know when I'm on shift, there's always certain things that I'll go to to look at that I find really useful when it comes to snow forecasting. Yeah, I think I mean, there's no one silver bullet, of course, but wet bulb freezing levels and how they're going to evolve uh, through a precipitation event are really, really useful. And uh, obviously we have a number of uh, radios on sounding to try and verify whether models are, are correct with the sort of thermal and the humidity structure in the lower layers. So for example, you've got a front coming up from the southwest you've had a cold east or southeasterly period and you know, the precipitation is going to fall snow for some period of time or it might be intensity dependent looking at the air mass that's going to feed into that i'll be looking at radiosons on the near continent and trying to you know trying to sort of qualitatively at least sort of assess whether the low level temperature and thermal structure is in line with what models are suggesting and then make a you know make adjustments based upon any any differences that you might see so that's that's probably a key one but it's not the whole story of course because you can get um you can get isothermal layers and all sorts you can get freezing rain and one diagnostic on its own won't tell you all that you really have to look at i find it a series of profiles and how they evolve through an event and often that'll tell you roughly and in the model space at least where freezing rain or snow might be more likely and when you get uh, sort of events where you get a combination of the two it's very very difficult um, so that, that, that's probably that's probably the, the main things I would look at, as well as just general situational awareness and experience of, of past events, really. And in this sort of air mass, in this sort of situation, you tend to expect snow in these kind of areas, and and, and so on. It's the, part of it's sort of part of it's very analytical and and data driven, and you're following science. Part of it's just kind of a bit of black art, really, and just having a feel for it. Yeah, it's that pattern recognition. Like in certain situations, you'll just know that a certain example road site is going to get snow in a certain situation at a certain level, a certain height. So you just, yeah, just recognising that you've got that situation again and that's probably what's going to happen again. Kind of like uh, there's a mixture of me that's like absolutely loves listening to that detail and then there's the other part of me that's like, oh God, I forgot how much work that is <laughs> <laughs> to do all those things. But you're so calm talking about it. You're just really calm. Do you ever get stressed? Not stressed. I mean, when I first started in this role, you know, nine years ago now yeah, I remember the first days I had 
severe weather, multiple different hazards, and people queuing up to speak to me and make decisions quite early in the shift. And I felt slightly under, I felt under pressure, absolutely. As the years have gone by and I've seen the seasons come and go in this role a number of times now, no one's ever seen everything, but there, there are a few occasions now where I think, oh, I've never seen this before. You know, I tend to, you just become more relaxed into the role and more, more comfortable with risk, I think. Um, and it's easy, I think, when you first start to be quite risk averse and be worried about missing things, therefore being a little perhaps pessimistic or tending to overwarn. I think that's a human nature thing, really, isn't it? You don't want to miss anything and things Absolutely, go wrong yeah. on your watch. You'd rather you slightly overwarned. Whereas now I think I'm probably more balanced in terms of I'm happy to accept an objective risk and say, well, yes, I, I take that on board and I know what to do if things start to go wrong. You know, that's part of part of the human aspects of the job, really. So I don't want to say I get stressed, but I think I think it's good as well to try and remain calm on shift. You think you, you make better decisions and those around you who are looking up to your kind of leadership feel more at ease. You don't, I mean, if you're on an airline, you don't want to hear the, if it's a bit hit by a turbulence, you don't want to hear a kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a sound from the cockpit and someone panicking. These rather not <laughs> someone someone calm there is it's kind of in charge and in, and running the shop. So I think it's good to try and at least even if on the inside you know, I've got no idea what's going on. I'll exaggerate there, but you know I'm struggling to get to grips with what's happening, which happens to us all. Uh, on the outside, I always try and remain sort of calm and think, well, I, I can all I can do is do my best, mm-hmm. be logical, and make the best decisions I can with the information I've got at the time, and. That, that will serve you well yeah. over the long run that's all anyone really can do in those situations i was just as you were talking then i was just thinking it always takes me back to previous shifts um when i've been forecasting especially going into the winter months all these situations are coming back to memory at the moment and i was just wondering is there one shift that really comes to mind when you think about snow like a really memorable shift which involves snow I mean, the, the very obvious one was the, the 1st of March 2018, when it was the, the culmination of the beast from the east and we had Storm Emma coming up from the south. And down here, where we don't get deep snow very often down here, but when it does happen, it can be really heavy because we've got warm sea nearby and everything's set up for it. And that was dead set blizzard set up with an easterly gale and dry powder drifting snow. So I came on shift and issued a red warning within 20 minutes of being in the chair. But that was probably the easiest red warning I'll ever do. It was, it was really... Really definitely going to be disruptive um but i'll probably choose another one where i actually chose not to issue a warning it was much harder um january 2017 and you won't remember it because nothing much happened but uh, some of our models were producing um a, a kind of a runner which went down across southern ireland and then our models deepened it over southwest england and tracked it across towards london with um sort of 20 centimeters of snow on its northern flank run after run after run and uh, our mogreps uk which is the ensemble based system had very high probs of amounts of snow that if it was for london and you you were going with that you'd be issuing a, at least an amber if not a red warning but at the same time there were imagery the observations and imagery mismatches in the in the development area west of ireland which looked rather flat from reality and it better matched sort of some other models like ec deterministic and its ensemble only had like a five percent prob of the same thing we had a 90 percent prob for so having that in 12 hours time where it's going to actually unfold towards the end of your shift it wasn't something that was two days down the line where you had time to put out a message and then monitor it. I had to decide that morning whether we were escalating up to amber or worse with some quite horrific looking model solutions, but say, actually, no, we're not going with that. 
uh, that was a really, really difficult shift. And in the end, we had a small amount of snow and that was it. So we made the right decision. But could easily, could easily have gone wrong in one way or another and caused, you know, well, carnage or reputational damage, depending which way which way it went wrong. Yeah. So uh, that, that, I'd say, was probably the hardest shift or decision I've had to make and one I'm probably proudest of. Or maybe it was a stroke of luck. I don't know. But uh, you know, it came out the right side. But that's one which no one noticed because nothing in the end actually happened. Yeah. Of course. Jeez, I... It's it's so incredible that even now, like all of the computer models that we have, and actually it's the most fundamental of everything. What are you observing? Is that what's what's happening in the computer model? But even with all of the layers and the vertical layers that you talked about now, there can be cases where something is happening that is just not being picked up somewhere. And it's that human interpretation of actually, I, I don't I don't agree with that. Yeah, it's pattern recognition of imagery as well. It's, yeah. you know, the more years you look at stuff, you spot more and more things. and you, you, you see the signature of a certain cloud shape which is associated with things developing. And when that signature is more pronounced in the model show, you're thinking, well, at least from first principles, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spin up more or spin up earlier. But the further ahead you get in time and space, though, you, you can't make a linear extrapolation and say, well, that means this. It just means the model's not going to be right, probably in one sense or another. But you can't then say, oh, in 24 hours of time, that means this this is what will be happening. This means mm-hmm. things are going to divert away from what the model suggests. So perhaps we let me use the ensemble to try and find a, a a member which does better fit that. And what what does it do to be a bit more objective? Sometimes there isn't one, though, of course. So uh, that, that's that's the, the part of the fun is that we've got this ma- this mega technology. There's got the, the supercomputer, these high resolution models running all the time, and mostly do a very good job. You know, and it's it's, a, it's, it's incredible we've got that data, but there are still times, though, which test it and test us. And you've got to step in and, and make a decision and kind of fly by hand. And uh, those are probably the, mo- the most difficult, but also the most enjoyable shifts. So you've mentioned MogReps a couple of times and ensemble forecasting. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and, you know, how ha- how you use it? So uh, for, for the benefit of those who don't know anything about computer modelling of weather, so we run computer models by... Um, we split the atmosphere into cubes all over the globe uh, of a certain size. And within those, we assign values of temperature, pressure, humidity, uh, and then many other variables as well, which uh, we analyze as, as being the starting conditions in the model and based upon observations, satellite imagery, uh, a whole host of other bits of observational data. And then we step that model forward using the equations of motion, thermodynamics, etc., and then how will it look in six hours, 12 hours time as a simulation of the atmosphere. So we can run what we call a deterministic model, which is, well, as, as the name suggests, it's deterministic because here's what the model thinks will happen in one we call a solution. So that's fine, but of course, sometimes the starting conditions are not quite right or the errors because we can't resolve every every molecule there on the, in the atmosphere. <clears throat> so what we do is run something called an ensemble, which is running the model a number of times, say 20, 30 or 50 times with very slightly tweaked starting conditions based upon the possible error in the analysis and then see if those forecasts diverge markedly or stay the same. And that tells us something about the sensitivity of the forecast to the starting conditions. And on some occasions, it'd be very, very sensitive and the solutions from the different ensemble members will diverge very, very quickly, which means confidence is quite low. Or there'll be times where it doesn't actually matter because it's such a strong, broad, scale signal for something to happen it swamps any kind of noise that's slightly wrong in the starting conditions it doesn't really matter so that sort of uh, extra layer of data adds to your arsenal of not just whether what what the forecast is going to be but also how confident are we in that 
Um, so MoGreps then is the, the UK MAT office ensemble, and most national MAT services run ensembles. Ours is called MoGreps, which is called MAT office Global and Regional Ensemble Prediction System. We run it on a global model scale, so kind of core synoptic resolution, if you like, out uh, sort of past day seven. And then the, we have one called MoGreps UK, which is uh, kind of similar to UKV, which is our highest resolution model. And the MoGreps UK has a horizontal resolution of 2.2 kilometers. So it'll recognize, well, it'll resolve that, yeah, things like small areas of cumulus clouds and, and sea breezes and that, that sort of thing. So we use those and then we can, from the number of members of, we've actually run, we can derive a probability of some threshold being exceeded. So for example, probability of more than five centimeters of snow or 50 knot gusts of wind or something like that. Now help when we do warnings, they'll help define the areas. Whilst the high resolution deterministic models will resolve quite realistic weather structures and they're very, very useful. Sometimes the the ensembles sort of give you a broader picture of where the main risk area is. And you kind of see then if the, the latest deterministic models are within that spread or they're a bit of an outlier and carry a low probability or not. That is just when you actually hear all of that. To go from the starting point to what I do at the end, so Gemma has a very similar role to you, but to do what I do, you know, to get to the point where I get, I'm like, like I, oh, it's so complicated, but actually what I'm given is so incredibly well put together. You know, it's just incredible how complicated, you know, how complicated forecasting actually is when you break it down like that and look at all the things you have to look at. It's so I complex. For those of us in this, in this kind of profession, you know, the, one one aspect of it is you well, you've got to be interested in the subject matter, but have quite an analytical brain, be able to sort of use logic and resolve the fact that in, in a perfect world of science you could compute everything, but in this, well, you can't. We're not there. You know, we, we have this gap between the, what the models have and the experience of the human and the pattern recognition. But beyond that is the communication to different um, customer groups, the public, uh, etc. And if you're not able to properly communicate what's in your head then you wasted your time really so if i'm on shift like today for example I've, before i spoke to you i was doing an aviation conference where i was speaking to a load of meteorologists around the uk different that's civilian and defense airfields who are interested in cloud base and visibility and perhaps more technical aspects of the weather but uh, a couple of hours before that i was on, I was on a conference with you talking about you know temperatures and and the sort of weather that Joe Public's interested in, whether it be a yellow warning or not for, for something. So that's all derived from the same information in my head. It's just a case of tailored to, to, to a different audience. And it was the same for Gemma as well, no doubt. You'll, you'll have different ways in which you present the information in your head, depending on who it is that, that you're briefing. It must make your job, well, it makes my job as well, but so interesting because it is so varied and you are talking to so many different clients as well. So you're having to tailor what you say to those clients, depending on who you're talking to. Absolutely. And it could be that one minute is one customer group or one level of meteorological knowledge or people who are more in touch with the technical aspects of meteorology versus those with perhaps none and be able to go straight from briefing one to another uh, just, just like that. That's that's part of the skill of the role, I think. You know, it really is, always reminds me of road forecasting. So that was definitely my baptism of fire into forecasting. Uh, my first job here in the UK was as a road forecaster, but it was always brought home to me particularly on a night shift that everything I was looking at and I was maybe into my second season at this stage so just kind of thinking oh okay maybe I've seen some of this before you know going from textbook to practicality but actually at the end of the day there there could be just somebody and likely is just somebody driving a gritter and they just want to know 
whether they take that critter out mm. or not and that's a yes or no answer and that's incredibly mm. complicated mm. if you, you know I mean it could be 3am in the morning they've been up all night or maybe they had a bad night's sleep or you know they, they just want to know do I go or don't I go it's actually it's a complicated job you speak to lots of different people who want different things and that critter driver doesn't care if the wet ball freezing level is 100 meters lower than you thought it was going to be. No. no. People don't know how high, how high up they are a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. It's going to yeah. snow here or not and when and how much. Yeah. And that, that is often, as we said at the start, it's very, very difficult in this country, isn't it? But people expect that and they've got no concept of the complexity in the background and how finely balanced things often are. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a few different customers already, but how do you find that the different customers that you talk to, how would they use the information that you're giving them, particularly when it comes to snow forecasting? What will they use that information for? And what yeah, decision gonna... makings are they going to be be making based on the information that you've given them? Well, I guess Ash has covered the, the more technical one, which is gritting a road, isn't it? But the other one is think when we issue like a an amber warning for snow and we'll say five to ten centimetres of snow above 100 meters and and what have you and more above 500 meters it's difficult to know really because our, our warning service covers both the general public and the kind of emergency responder group or the civil contingencies kind of group so it's local councils those that plan for resources and where where they're going to move resources around from one place to another based on the forecast and we give the technical information and the warnings you, you often wonder who's reading all this versus who's just looking at well amber warning it's going to snow but most people i don't, don't think in the general public probably read too much into that detail so we, we offer it there we give all all the detail in the kind of the part b if you like the further details but the first bit which is bang here's the message is it's be prepared for disruption from snow and you'd hope that you kind of capture both the, the, the lay person or the person that's not interested in the weather to change their behaviors and also offer some information that's of use to those who are you know more interested in the weather or have knowledge of the complexity of it at the same time it's very very difficult to be honest there's no really easy way of doing that we just do the best that we can to communicate our message so it reaches as many people as possible and it's as useful to as many people as possible so just um just the level of warning then kick off something else so if it's a yellow warning does that mean you have to alert councils or you know do different things happen once the levels change yeah i think there are certain behaviors and certain protocols that are followed at civil contingency level depending on it's partly the color of the warning but it's also the position in the risk matrix so if you actually look at a warning you've got likelihood versus impact so a yellow warning could be a different kind of flavor altogether from another like a warning might be quite a high lo- likelihood of some low impacts because that's the sort of thing the fog does it's not going to cause widespread devastation but you'll get difficult you know road conditions aviation conditions and there's a limit to how impactful that's going to get. Whereas at the other end of the scale, if you've got a small likelihood of a, an intense, a rapidly developing intense depression with 80 mile an hour winds in land, but it's only a low likelihood, that could cause us to issue a yellow warning, but on the, on the bottom right of the of the scale and have the potential to escalate up to amber or even red. Um, so when we issue a warning like that, we would hope that, well, we, we know that the responder community certainly treats that differently to a yellow warning, which I've sort of first described for the fog, but the public, you, know, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect them to to sort of be interested in that intricacy. It's, it's the yellow warning when most people think, well, yellow, that's sort of something to be aware of. Amber was pretty bad now, and red is kind of abandoned ship. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we, we'd expect the uh, the civil contingency community if, if we were issuing something for day five. So go back to the beast from the east. I think on the preceding Sunday or Monday, we issued a very low likelihood of high impacts warning for what came up from the southwest and each day roughly speaking went up a level of likelihood until we reached red 
So it wasn't a surprise, really, or shouldn't have been a surprise that we ended up going red for it. Um, so I would expect during that time, our civil contingencies advisors that work in the Met Office were embedded within that community would be briefing quite heavily on, well, yes, it's yellow now, but we expect it's likely to end up amber or even red, depending on how things evolve. So more planning might be taken in, in terms of resources and you know, will electricity be affected? Will certain roads be blocked? Will certain communities get cut off? Uh, for that, they would be for a different sort of yellow, whereas for the public, tends to be probably be more, I expect, more reactive uh, based on the colour of the warning. So, yeah, it's quite complex. So that kind of goes back to the point I made about the, we use one warning system to satisfy both the, the civil contingencies and resp emergency responder community versus the, the overall public. Mm -hmm. I guess that's about, yeah, each of them looking at it in a different way, which comes back to your different customers. Time is flying by, Paul, and we're going to have to move on. Gemma, do you want to, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So we're going to do a get to know me round. Um, just a few questions. The, some of them are weather related. Some of them are just really, you'll find out they're very, very random. Okay. Okay. So first of all, what's your favourite season? Winter. <gasps> no one's the that first yet. person that's ever said that. <laughs> really? Why? I like, I like cold weather. I like snow. I like all this. I like the seasons. I like seasonality. So I like there to be a definition, a difference between the seasons. When you get like mm -hmm. a cool, damp summer and then a mild, wet winter, and it minimises the seasonality. I hate that. I like it when you get warm weather when it's supposed to be warm and cold weather when it's supposed to be cold. And I like the that. transitions between the two. I like, so I like, I, like the, I like the autumn when you get the first frost and fog and the first windstorm. I like the spring when you start getting the first warm days and the warm evenings and the first sort of showers developing in land and all that kind of stuff. But generally, I, I find it, I mean, the thing that first got me into weather was was the snow, and that's still there. And yeah, I'm not quite this like I'm not a child anymore. You know, it's, it it comes a lot of work these days. But and I mean, obviously, winter shifts are generally harder and busier than summer shifts. But generally speaking, though, you know, that, I find that sort of weather more interesting than than that at other times of the year. I think you've described so, seasons yeah. really well there. Yeah. Actually, have you got a favourite cloud? I mean, it's easy to go for cumulonimbus, isn't it? That's <laughs> the most. I'd say I'd probably say Alter Q Castellanus actually. <gasps> That's been said a few yeah. times, actually. Yeah. Yes. Especially when you get it kind of late evening in summer with a low sun angle and you start getting a good shadow on one side. But on the other hand, I mean, I quite like the winter squat CBs that you get when you've got snow showers and snow and hail showers that wants to feed in one after another and you get the anvil flying across really quickly and it's 10 minutes of heavy snow and then it kind of clears up and you can't see very much. And then all of a sudden you've got blue sky and then you've got the anvil, the next one coming in. You don't get that very often, it seems, but when it does happen, you know, it's... Yeah, I quite like the colour sort of cloudscapes and the contrast between the blue and all sorts of colours you get, you know, in the in the in kind of the anvils of the clouds that are moving away. Gosh, you're really taking us on a little weather journey here. Yeah. It's like three different <laughs> models into the sky and how everything looks. It's amazing. It's a blend between kind of science and art, isn't it really? It is. It is a dark, a dark, beautiful art. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Tea. Can't really, can't really argue <laughs> on that one, yeah. Jeremy Dodgers or Jaffa Cakes? Jammy Dodgers. <gasps> Why? Just prefer them. I like them both. Don't get me wrong. Not not many cakes and biscuits I don't like. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's a kind of a. I know they're both a bit chewy, but I like I like the sort of really chewy centre of a jammy Dodger. It's got a real, yeah. real goodness to it. I kind of eat around them and then get to the last bit. Like that's the the best bit. Savor it. Yeah. Okay, this is one of our random ones. So if you had to pick a fruit or vegetable to represent you, what would it be? God. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 um, hang on a minute. Have to think here. I'd say a potato because you can do all sorts of stuff with it. Get in, love a potato. 
if you could pick anybody to uh, have dinner with and it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame it could be a fictional character as well who would it be um oh, there's probably lots of people kurt cobain ah interesting good answer what would you ask him just loads of stuff about his music really yeah. and try and convince him not to to uh, do what he did but yeah 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 that's a good one another random one for you fingers for toes or toes for fingers um so am i right in thinking that whichever way around you do it like if i said fingers for toes you still have your fingers as well yeah yeah i'd, go for, that. I'd, I'd, I'd go for that then because fingers are way more useful than toes Four hands. You can't, you, can't, you can't really hold how could you hold like the a takeaway wrapper with your toes i can't see how you do that or change you could, the like, tv forecast channel. and eat at the same time and use your bazillion screens that you have for my office <laughs> And our final question is, one thing that you wish everybody knew about the weather? How hard it is to forecast sometimes in this country. How lucky we are that we ever get it right at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're so funny because there's such a truth in that as well. Like, obviously, we get the weather right, but the actual exact site-specific detail is just... It blows your mind when you actually, you know, where, where you're sitting, where I'm sitting, if someone's 10 metres down from me. Yeah, it is actually. That's a really good one. I think expectations are higher than they used to be as well. So, and it's a, it's a national pastime, isn't it, to, to slag off the weather forecasts? So yeah. It's kind of a conversation starter. <laughs> and uh, when, when I first started out, you know, in 20, 21 years back, I was quite defensive, you know. And I'd, I remember once I was in a local um, superstore and I heard somebody in front of me at the checkout saying, This was a well forecast hot spell. It'd been forecast like a week, 10 days in advance, and it was 25 degrees. And the woman in front of me said to the lady at the checkout, Oh, they never said it'd be like this. And I was like a red rag to a ball. Uh, but, and I said, oh, have you not been watching the TV? And I, had to, I kind of couldn't help myself. Whereas that now, you know, I've seen it all before. I've heard it all before. I let it wash over me. I don't, I don't even say what I do. I just kind of keep quiet and think, well, yeah, you can't too. reach everybody. But yeah. yeah. I always find that really entertaining when someone will say to me, oh, I hear they say it's going to be wet and windy tomorrow yeah. or it's going to snow in a week's time. And I'm like... Oh, is that what they've said? Okay, yeah. 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 Well, my favourite is... I said is... yesterday at work, but if that's what the <laughs> newspapers are saying, I'm Who sure... Who are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my favourite at home. It's like somebody saying, I wonder what the weather's doing tomorrow. And I'm like... um Maybe you could just ask somebody <laughs> who's in the house who might have. If only that. you knew somebody who, did this for a job. Who apparently you knew somebody who did it for a job, so probably really does have an idea about what the weather's going to tomorrow. Anyway, so um, at the end of every episode, Paul, we like to um, ask our guests to explain a little weather wisdom. So we were hoping today you could tell us a bit about thunder snow. Oh yeah, well. Thunder snow is snow in a thunderstorm <laughs> or a bit of lightning striking in a snow shower, which is more likely. So obviously occur in the winter half of the year, very cold, cold air from the Arctic or from you know, northeast Europe, somewhere like that, comes over a warm sea quite rapidly, very unstable, lots of cape, lots of you know, vertical motion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a combination of being cold enough to support snow. And there's some charge separations generate lightning, and I've seen it a number of times. You know, it's, it's relatively rare, but I've you know, I've seen it quite a number of times, both here when we've had something coming up from the English Channel and really cold air from the east, but also um, being from sort of northwest England and often used to get like really cold Arctic air masses that come down over the Irish Sea, and you get like the North Channel convergence streamer. And I'm kind of from the south of Manchester, kind of near where Manchester Airport is. And often that seems to be the corridor where it gets stuck. So rather than being like snow showers, you get like a persistent snow and hail sometimes and with occasional flashes of lightning. And 
that that's I think in some parts of the country it's quite common in the winter half of the year. If you live right in the middle, well inland across the UK, you're probably pretty rare you'd ever actually see that. It sounds yeah, it does different happen. though, doesn't it? It sounds like sounds different because the thunder is happening in snow, so the sound yeah. is it's muffled, isn't it? Yeah, it's sounding quite slightly different, but actually, yeah, yeah not not that uncommon. You often can't see that actual bolt of lightning. You just see the general flashing. It's obviously thousands and thousands of snowflakes, so uh, quite different to, to the impact the rain has on the visibility of, of lightning strikes. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today. It's been such an interesting chat. We always love chatting to people that work in the weather because we learn loads. But we're obsessed. We just absolutely love talking about the weather <laughs> for any opportunity. So thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. If you've listened to this podcast and you've enjoyed it, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with anybody that you think that might like to have a little listen. You can find us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok. On both of those platforms, we are For the Love of Weather. On Twitter, we are the number four Love of Weather. And as always, we just really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. And if you want to contact Paul, you can always obviously contact through us as well and we can pass on any questions. But yeah, Paul, thank you so much for your very valuable time today. I do appreciate how crazy busy you are. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us and share your love of the weather. And yeah, we just hope everyone leaves this episode loving the weather that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.